You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week. Uh, how's everybody doing? Good. How are I'm you? I'm doing great. Yeah, wonderful. Loving, loving being here and sharing Good. all this weird science and nature with everybody. I, I want to talk about fungus this week. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about fungus this week. Fungus. I still have the story of the fungus growing in someone's esophagus, Rachel. Sorry. Uh, on my brain from a few weeks ago. <laughs> it's hard to get out of horrifying. the mind. Yeah. Horrifying. Uh, yeah. Those of us, our patrons got to hear the extra special information about uh, like uh, expressing the, uh, uh, what, what do you call it? The um, abscess that was Ooh, horrifying. Yeah. Um, yep. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> I, so I suppose, uh, you know, better to have fungus on my brain than literally in my brain, Indeed. which could definitely, I uh, feel like will be a topic maybe on the show at some point. Oh, uh, gross. But I got that going for me that it's not in my brain. Uh, when we think about fungus uh, and trees, like specifically how the relationship between fungus and trees, I think we can break things into three general groups and boy oh boy do we humans love putting things into groups oh yeah so here goes evolution has given us fungi that fill three different niches or roles in nature first up we have those that feed on dead tissue mm -hmm. i think these are the most common type we think of these are like the mushrooms growing out of dead trees in the forest they help recycle plants by breaking them down uh, when i'm teaching or i go to a school to teach and they're like a school forest and I'm walking kids around. They're all, they're pointing out mushrooms. This is this is what they're seeing. It's the only type of fungus they usually have learned about, like in their classroom. They're excited to see. Mm -hmm. We call these fungus saprotrophic. Uh, mm -hmm. So remember that word, saprotrophic. Uh, there are two other ways, though, to make a living as a fungus. One is just to be a straight up parasite. So I guess we're kind of <laughs> back talking about parasites a little bit. Yeah. Um, you can literally invade a living, healthy host plant so not a dying sick you know sick one or dying wood mm -hmm. but a healthy host plant and just mooch nutrients off them and be a parasite right yeah that so sounds like a great not surprisingly, idea yeah not surprisingly these are called parasitic fungi so pretty easy one uh ringworm which you mentioned a few episodes back rachel is an example oh, of yeah. parasitic fungi mm-hmm and so are cordyceps, which have gotten a lot of press in the last year as cordyceps are the fungi in the hit TV show, The Last of Us. Ah, right. there it uh, is. Where they create, yeah. where they create zombies. Uh, I mean, fiction. we've so, talked about cordyceps, <laughs> haven't we? Yeah, I think a little bit. Like yeah. way, way, uh, not, way at the beginning. Yeah, we, it, was, it was, you know, before it was cool. Right. Uh, so there was, there was a third way to make a living as a fungus, and that's to be a mutualist. Mm -hmm. So basically, yes, you are taking nutrients from a host plant like a parasite, but you're also giving back something mm -hmm. to your host plant to help it survive so that you can help survive more. So it can survive. Is that survive. like lichen? I think the most, uh, not like a, 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 what I'm thinking of is more 
um, like mycorrhizal. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I was animals. thinking of. Yeah, that's like that that live in the tree roots. That's kind of the most uh, the most common thing in that case is the fungi are really good at uh, fixing nitrogen and getting that out of the atmosphere and then giving that to the plant and the plant in t- return gives it carbon. Uh, so that that's kind of the the, pl- the plant fungi economy going on there. Okay. So those are our nice, neat, clear cut roles for fungi, and there's. No need to ever veer from those boxes, right? I mean, <laughs> never would nature ever do that to us. Kirk, right? did you listen to our show? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Uh, nature laughs at our little boxes. So a bunch of researchers have been looking at bonnet mushrooms, also Ooh. known by their genus name Mycena. That's not John Cena, by the way, but Mycena. Uh, Mycena seem to be doing something interesting. So they're Ooh. commonly thought of as saprotrophs. So that first group we talked about, they live by feeding on dead tissue, like basically r- old rotten trees. Mm-hmm. But Danish research, but a, a Danish researcher, Christopher uh, Bugge, I'm assuming if it's maybe Danish, I'm not sure if he's actually Danish or just working there. Uh, and his colleagues, they tested out the tree roots of 10 different tree species. These are healthy, you know, perfectly healthy living trees. And they found Mycena growing in nine out of 10 of those healthy root samples. Hmm, what? Th- those different tree species. These were not dead roots. They were perfectly healthy roots where a, uh, you know, saprotrophic mushroom really shouldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. So what is a fungus that grows by feeding on dead plants doing in the roots of healthy trees? Well, there's two obvious options. Preparing. They are there as parasites. Or they're there as mutualists helping the trees. And further research has shown it is the latter. They're actually helping the trees by giving them nitrogen in return for carbon. Cool. So weirdly, this known saprotroph, which usually feeds on dead stuff, is hanging out in all these tree roots, being all cool, with also being a mutualist. Hmm. And this is weird because while a saprotroph can can live alone, essentially... Most of the mutualists that we know of are completely dependent on their hosts huh. to get nutrients to survive. Like they can't, yeah. they can't even create their own nutrients. We're clearly, uh, to some degree, uh, like, you know, the um, saprotrophs ca- can do that. So mycena don't need to be there. They don't depend on nutrients from living plants to survive. But uh, here hmm. they are. It seems like a weird thing, but it's really quite brilliant. So they just like living the company. as a mutualist. Well, yeah, right. I mean, kind of, but living as a mutualist is it's a good gig, right? Like you I get mean, lots yeah. of carbon, which helps you grow. Uh, but for the for most mutualists, when this host species dies, well, then you're in trouble, right? Right. Because it does. You're not going to get what you need anymore. But Mycena, they're like, oh, uh, the restaurant is shut down and not serving food. Oh, okay, that's cool. I'll just eat the restaurant instead. <laughs> the fungus is already there, ready to devour the remains of the tree once it dies. It doesn't have to compete with other fungus for the right to decompose this tree. They've been there all along. They were there first. They've already colonized the entire tree ahead of time. And cool. it's a huge advantage and really brilliant. So here's where I think things get really interesting and strange, though. The research team that was looking at these uh, at this claims we are witnessing fungal evolution. 
and the ability for a fungus to take on both of these roles may be new. And that really threw me for a loop as my brain would not have made that same leap. It seems like this is a huge evolutionary advantage. Mm -hmm. So surely fungus that can do this shouldn't it have been doing it for like a really long, long, long time. Mm. Fungus and trees have been around for a long time. And what the authors argue, however, is that the conditions may not have been present to allow for this sort of evolution until recently, or Mm. maybe at least not for this species. Um, So here's what they're saying. If you think of an old growth forest, the plant and fungal communities are pretty set in place. You have trees that are many hundreds of years old. If a saprotroph that feeds on dead plants wants to like get into the business of being a mutualist, they've got a big problem. The jobs are already taken. The mutualists are already in the roots of these trees, and they've been there for hundreds of years. There's really no way to get a foothold to kind of try out this other way of, of being. These researchers are arguing that humans clear-cutting forests and starting them over from scratch may have changed the evolutionary conditions and pressures on this fungus. Hmm. There are no established colonies of mutualists in a brand new plantation of even age young trees. There's a window of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the Mycena fungus, they claim, was able to take advantage of that and take on this mutualistic role. I'm not sure I buy that yet. I mean, yeah. old growth forests are not the monolithic things we assume them to be. Historically, there were lots of forest fires, and sections of the forest were regularly taken down to bare soil by right. fires, and succession would start over. So any of those would have been opportunities uh, for a change in you know, what fungus might be present. Perhaps, though, it could be that those small clearings like this that are caused by these fires, you know, Mycena, because of some of those small clearings, Mycena developed the ability to be a mutualist uh, that was kind of in their DNA. And then these huge landscape-wide clear-cutting things that we have done by, you know, by human hand have really given them the opportunity to evolve even further without as much competition kind of holding this back. Who knows? Uh, This is something they're looking into. But it's pretty interesting. It's all part of the tangled web of evolution. And as we're trying to figure it, figure it out, um, I, I thought it was interesting that, again, like I talked about last week, we as humans are changing the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. And we're having an effect on not only the plants and animals, but even the fungi present. And perhaps even directing the course of evolution because of our, ap- our actions by introducing new conditions and new pressures. So pretty wild stuff. Uh, my primary source this week was a story on fizz.org called Fungal Evolution Discovered. It was basically a press release, uh, very much, uh, written by the University of Copenhagen bragging about the research going on there, uh, but quite interesting nonetheless. Cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing, Kirk. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go to a quick break, and when we come back, it will be Rachel. Alrighty. Welcome back, everyone. So this week. Okay. So this week, I really want to talk about how sometimes when you are in science and you are doing research, you go in and you're doing an experiment and you think, 
oh, hey, this will be fine. And then something completely different happens. And you discover <laughs> oh, yeah. something else. <laughs> and it just kind of is a little off the rails, but very much exciting. So while the rest of us were doing various things like baking bread, and uh, for me at least, I was learning how to raise one eyebrow. Uh there were some scientists uh, in 2020 that actually learned uh, that apparently sturgeon, uh, like a Russian sturgeon, which is a highly endangered species of fish, which is really, which is mostly used for like caviar, for example. Right. And That's why it's endangered. It, yes, it is. <laughs> right. And paddlefish, apparently, they can hybridize. Oh, really? Uh-huh. and paddlefish? You sound... Interesting. Intrigued. To give you context for why I this is intrigued. absolutely bonkers. So what the scientists were doing is they were truly trying to... Um, figure out a way to help out the Russian sturgeon. Um, they were trying to, they were using uh, gynogenesis, uh, which is a type of asexual reproduction, um, to uh, fertilize sturgeon eggs. They were just trying to, I don't even know what their original question was, to be honest. But they... Uh, how can we make more caviar? <laughs> pretty much. I think it was <laughs> yeah, how can much. we make more caviar and not take away from the sturgeons that are already out there. Right. So in order to do that, you generally will want to fertilize those eggs with the sperm of a fish or whatever that can't be, there's no possible way for it to work. And it did. (laughs) Um, Wait, all uh, okay. wait, what worked? It, the gynogenesis? The the gynogenesis, they were using paddlefish sperm to fertilize the sturgeon eggs, and it actually fertilized the sturgeon eggs and created why were they viable fish. Why were they trying to fertilize them with the wrong species? Well, it was an accident. Oh, okay. Which right. is even better, right? I'm confused. So if they were trying to do gynogenesis, which if I understood you correctly and from the name, it sounds like it's a, a asexual reproduction using only female cells. Why were they doing any sperm at all? Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's something where you were trying to use sperm from a species that can't um, uh, fertilize it, but that somehow it might cause cell division or something, just the presence of it being there. I think that was the idea behind it. All right. And they're like, well, we need to find something that you absolutely will not be able to fertilize it. Like, there's no way. It'll be fine. Oh. So, like, the sperm will trigger it to happen, but it doesn't actually incorporate the sperm normally. Exactly. Except that it did. Okay. Except it happened. Not supposed to be able to work at all. Like, to give you all context, to give everyone context, these are two very, very old lines of fish. And they're very, very spread apart. Um, Their last common ancestor of uh, Russian sturgeon 
and a American paddlefish is 140 million years back. That's a so, little ways back. Uh, yeah. Wow. To, to give you context, that would be like us trying to hybridize, hybridize with like a platypus. Um, to give us so, con- like Rachel, yes, to, I gotta know. Like, yeah, do we have photos? Yes, we have like, photos. Did they raise these? Yeah, oh, there was oh, a seventy percent wow. like most um, most like hybridizations are not good. It was a high yeah, survival right. rating. Seventy percent of the hybrids survived to like continue on. Like a lot of them, obviously, the males were. Um, sterile or um, they can't like mate or anything like that or anything like that but it was very much oh unintentional God, they, call- they called them turtle fish turtle fish I love it turtle fish it's a great name that's great um, but it, it's 70% of these hybrids survived to pass like the tenuous little young ages to point where they were adults. So generally speaking, they're not looking at trying to like mate with them or do anything like that, but they were healthy and able to survive Mm -hmm. just fine. Uh, They're sterile. They can't continue on, but it was a complete accident. They're not going to create any caviar. They're not going to create any caviar, but they're just, yep. I just, I came across sturtlefish and the fact that these two <laughs> fish, because the, to be honest, like they were, uh, they were just trying to, like we were saying, like we stumbled into, they were um, trying to just trigger the, the, the cells to multiply or whatever. But it's right, like, right. you wouldn't think, it's like, it would honestly be like humans trying to hybridize with a platypus. You know, it's that level of far back. Oh, that's weird. Wow. Wow. Let's not so, try that. No, no. let's not. Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to let you all know that this lovely uh, species known as the sturtle fish um, exists. And I just want to tell you all about it. So the original study was published in Jean's journal. Uh, it was the hybridization of Russian sturgeon and the American paddlefish and the evaluation of their progeny. Uh, this was done in uh, Hungary. Uh, so there was the National Agricultural Research and Innovation Center Research Institute for Fisheries and Aquaculture in Hungary was involved as well as various other people. And it was um, published in 2020. I also used uh, the New York times had an excellent article about it. Scientists accidentally bred the fish version of a liger solid title there, as well as awesome. um, C- uh, CNET had a really good article as well. Um, as well as these beautiful pictures. They look kind of cute. I'm not going to lie. They look kind of fun. <laughs> um, so please expect those on the Instagram. They don't have like the long like nose of a paddle, but they do have 
less bumps and a little longer snout. So just fascinating, fascinating so thing strange. that came about. So I have a, it's a short and sweet Appreciate topic it. for me this week, but lots of fun. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, it'll be Victoria. So I was listening to that episode you guys did without me a few weeks ago, the one with the rat lungworm and the cross-species fungal infection, yes. which was... I think that's really up there in terms of um, gross episodes that we've done. It was great. And wildly was not the Halloween episode. (laughs) I know. I was really sorry not to have been there. You were right. Those topics were totally up my alley. Right, yeah. In a slightly roundabout way, that throat infection uh, inspired me and led me to today's topic, which I'm just going to tell you is is nowhere near as grim as either of those. It's, it's much more just sort of oh, interesting, Excellent. Uh, but we'll Good come to back know. to this at the end. I am going to start off today by talking about Carl, Carl Reinhold August. Okay. I'll start over. That is quite a name. <laughs> yeah. Carl Reinhold August. I wasn't even done. Wunderlich. Oh, Carl oh, was a physician, wow. a medical professor and a psychiatrist who lived in Germany from 1815 to 1877. He did lots of stuff in his career, but what he is most famous for is two related things. One, he is often credited with inventing the clinical thermometer. You know, like if you're feeling sick and you need to take your temperature with a thermometer, that kind of thermometer. However, Carl did not, in fact, invent the clinical thermometer. He didn't even pioneer the clinical use of the thermometer. Uh, there, there are in fact works of science and medicine going back to like the 17th century that recommend using thermometers to measure the intensity of fevers. Uh, okay. But what Carl, he just got the credit. Yeah, he got the credit. What he actually did and what he's most famous for is he determined the average human body temperature. Oh, that's helpful. That guy. That guy. So the famous 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 degrees centigrade. That is Carl. Hmm. Okay. He, gotcha. I mean, way to go, Carl. Yeah, Carl, Come on, Carl compiled a truly massive amount of data on body temperature. Several million temperature readings taken from approximately 25,000 patients over 18 years. Do we know how good wow. his thermometer was, though? Well, there's been some discussion about that. We'll kind of come back okay. to that later a little bit. The mind does boggle the scale of this data, though, and he analyzed all of that without a computer, needless to say. Oh, by hand. Man, that's some big data. I mean, he probably had some assistance, Rough. let's be real. But still. Give him some props there. Also, the thermometers he used were quite large. They were about 22 and a half centimeters long, which is almost nine inches. And when, uh, uh-oh. when used in the armpit, which is where oh. Carl preferred to take his measurements. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with this. Okay, <laughs> no, luckily, good. no, not, okay. not the other gotcha. place. Gotcha, okay. Also been very awkward to put a thermometer like that in your mouth either. So it was the armpit. True. But it took 15 to 20 minutes to register. <laughs> and oh, no. No. <laughs> also, this, this thermometer had not... Uh, technologically advanced to the point where it would hold the highest temperature recorded or registered. 
Oh, okay. so like yeah. I don't know. I, I'm I'm old enough that when I was a kid, we had a mercury thermometer, and yeah, me too. You you put it in your mouth, and then it would come up, and, it, and then whatever your temperature was, it would stay there until you shook it down. But these yeah. thermometers were not like that. You had to read them while they were in the armpit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Awkward. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. At any rate, he found out lots of things about human body temperature. He gave an estimated range of normal body temperature of 36.2 to 37.5 degrees centigrade with the mean of 37, 98.6. And by doing this, he also defined what makes a fever, 38 degrees centigrade or 100.4 Fahrenheit. So if you ever wondered why your kids need to stay home from daycare or school when their temperature reaches 100.4, now you know. Huh. Huh. He also found that women have slightly higher temperatures on average than men and that they tend to have bigger temperature variability than men. And that temperature varies according to the time of day. Lower in the morning, higher in the afternoon, early evening. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. So thanks, Carl. Obviously, some of those numbers that he came up with have embedded themselves pretty deeply in our minds and our society. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. However, there's been, yeah, totally, like 98.6. Everybody thinks that's supposed to be your normal temperature. There's been significant yep. reevaluation of the numbers mm-hmm. in the last several decades. So, for example, a study in 1992 compared Wunderlich's data to that of 148 healthy adults and found that the average temperature of these 148 adults was actually 36.8 or 98.2. Okay. Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine more, is always lower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're pretty normal in that way. More okay. recently, there was Woo. a study by researchers. First time anyone's ever said I'm normal. I appreciate that. <laughs> just your body temperature. Nothing else. Wow. Nothing else. Okay. Just that. <laughs> but in a good way. Uh, more recently, there was a study by researchers at Stanford University that was published in 2020 that took a elect- retrospective look at body temperature using three large data sets. Uh, The first was from Union Army veterans from 1862 to 1930 from the the U.S., obviously. These are all U.S. data sets. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one was from the U.S. National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 1971 to 1975, and also adult patients at Stanford HealthCare between 2007 and 2017. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they used all these data to create a model. And the model, they validated it by checking stuff we knew about, like, women's temperatures versus men temperature, men's temperatures and temperatures at different times of day and all that stuff that's been validated uh, other times as well and shown to be true. <clears throat> but it found that average body temperature actually has been decreasing in the United States decade over decade for more than 100 years. About I had heard I that. That's wondering so if you were going yeah. there for that. About does not bode um, well for us in fungal affections. Well, we'll get there. Point <laughs> zero five oh. degrees <laughs> Fahrenheit per decade. Yeah, so okay. that that translates to the body temperature of a man born in the nineteen nineties is about one point zero six degrees Fahrenheit lower than one born in the early eighteen hundreds, and for women. It would be a drop of about 0.58 degrees Fahrenheit. And they did 
try to try to account for the effect that improved thermometer technology could have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. they compare temperatures over time within each data set. And in the Civil War veterans uh, data set, which was the longest one because it lasted from the 1860s to 1930s, they observed the same temperature mm. drop over the decades. Um, and they, you know, they were making the assumption that similar temperature thermometers were used within that data set, but still they observed okay. that. And hmm. so what could be causing this? The researchers have a couple hypotheses. Uh, one is that the dropping temperatures may be due to less infectious disease burden, basically due oh, to the improvements okay. over the last 150 years in treatments, prevention, sanitation, hygiene, availability of food. Like, for example, like a lot more, lot bigger percentage of people in the 19th century were infected with things like tuberculosis, syphilis, gum disease, chronic infections that um, always had a little mm-hmm. low grade fever. Kind yeah, of like chronic inflammation. Exactly. They also hmm. hypothesize that living as many Americans do in comfortably heated and cooled homes contributes to a lower metabolic rate. And body temperature Mm. correlates with metabolic rate to a large extent. Um, Our bodies simply don't have to work as hard to keep themselves at the right temperature. And that (laughs) lowers our temperature overall, which that sounds funny, but that's, that's kind of what the, what the idea is. Mm -hmm. And as, as some supporting evidence, they pointed to a small study from Pakistan, fairly recent, where there are pretty still still pretty high rates of chronic infection and they found no such drop in body temperature. So the temperature I think was still 98.6 or close to it. So I was, if you remember back how I started out the episode, I was inspired by the fungal infection of the trachea that Rachel talked about. Yep. And yeah, as you mentioned, Rachel, yeah, fungal infections are increasing worldwide and this is, likely as a result of fungi ad- adapting to higher temperatures due to global warming. Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, up until recently, human or generally mammalian body temperature, there's, there, it's thought that one of the reasons that our bodies are the temperature they are is that it keeps fungi from invading us. If fungi are adapting to a warmer environment as the human body temperature drops, that could actually be a recipe for <laughs> disaster. Not, not great. Not great. Not great. <laughs> Yay, global Yay. warming. Yay, global warming. I will say, though, the one of the, because when I was doing some research for my topic this week, which is mm-hmm. about fungus, um, this was actually brought up by some of the researchers about some of these fungus. And as the, the earth warms, are we going to end up with. You know, stud- studying the evolution of, of how these um, fungus can survive. And one of the things they pointed out is that, yes, while the Earth is getting warmer, a lot of the Earth, like especially in the tropics and whatnot, is already warmer than we would expect. Yeah. We're going to see it in other places. And like, we, mm-hmm. we haven't seen humans there been getting these. Well, there um, are more you know, the fungal infections there. in the tropics. There are. Mm. Yeah. But they're saying that yeah. they're wondering if, like, if we haven't seen this sort of disaster, doom and gloom, you know, cordyceps taking over and creating zombies in the tropics yet then we're we're probably okay you know okay well hopefully that's true (laughs) yeah hopefully we'll be optimistic about it my uh 
my sources this week were a couple of papers, Carl Reinhold, August Wunderlich, and the Evolution of Clinical Thermometry, which was uh, from March ni- 1994 in Clinical Infectious Diseases, and also a critical appraisal of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the upper limit of the normal body temperature and other legacies of Carl Reinhold, August Wunderlich, which was in JAMA uh, in September 1992. Also, the Stanford Medicine website and Wired Magazine. Yeah. Amazing. That Good stuff this week, everyone. That's yeah. what we got this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah. We'll Thanks see you all here. next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.
So a couple things I wanted to say for mm, I patrons. You might have a little bonus for us. Yeah. So just just about uh, lower body temperature making us potentially more vulnerable to fungal diseases. They think right. that is what is going on with the um, the white nose syndrome that's decimating bat oh. populations because it interesting yeah. it affects okay. them when they're hibernating which is uh, a time when their body temperature drops from what it normally yeah. is. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Huh. Glad I don't hibernate now. Yeah. Wake up with white nose syndrome. Yeah. Right. I'd prefer not to. You don't but, live in a oh cave, though, so that probably helps. I mean, <clears throat> maybe I would if I hibernated, though. Who right. knows? Well, yeah. Be fun. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is... Uh, there's one particular fungus in, uh, that has been coming to the attention of the medical community in just the last seven or eight years. Oh, called no. okay, Candida auris. And actually, um, Radiolab did a really great episode a few years ago about this, called "Fungus Among Us." Uh, but mm, basically, the story is Candida auris is a fungus that's been around for a long time and it hasn't Mm -hmm. caused any problems in humans, but then suddenly simultaneously at three different widely dispersed locations around the world, it started causing serious like life threatening infections in humans in hospitals and is now, and now become extremely widespread and, and they, you know, CDC and places like that did a ton of like, yeah. Research and tracking to try to figure out like, was this transported from one was there one hospital to the other somehow? Or was there some sure, medical sure. supplier that was the source of this? And the answer was no, 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 no. They couldn't find anything. And they think it's just mm-hmm. spontaneous. Because of some like global warming trigger point that like reached it adapted to the temperature it needed to adapt to finally in, invade the human body. Oh my god! Yay. And now it's becoming a really big problem in oh, hospitals around no. the world. Wow! Great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when you were talking about the temperature and whatnot, I think I thought about you know the, the the giant thermometer that took fifteen <laughs> minutes to uh, get that initial data, and it reminded me mm-hmm. of something I hadn't really thought about for a long time. But you're mm-hmm. right, Victoria. When I, I'm I'm just old enough that when I was a kid, we had you go to the doctor's office and they take your temperature every time. And I I have this distinct memory of like the clinic place we used to go to as a kid and sitting in this one specific hallway in these chairs, kind of where the the nurse would take your your temperature and they'd put that glass, you know, thermometer Mm -hmm. under your tongue and then they'd leave. They'd walk away and go do something else because it took so long. Yeah, like five minutes. To get the readout. Yeah, I remember being like, oh... My God, I most of my time at the doctor's office is just sitting here waiting for the nurse to come back <laughs> to check my temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember this one magical day where they came in with this box with a little, you know, coiled cord on it and a little, you know, thing, and they put it under your tongue, and it, went, it was not instant. It was like two minutes or something, uh-huh. right? And you, but you're like, oh my gosh, it's so fast! Like they didn't walk away; they just stood there. So maybe it was like a minute or 30 seconds, whatever it was. And it beep, and they're like, oh, there's temperature. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> how did you do how that? How did you do it so fast? But if you <laughs> use one of those now, you'd be like, why is it so slow? Because they just walk up, and they're like, boop, 
instant read, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember it was sort of that very first sort of digital one. And it was like, oh my gosh, we are in the future. And of course now it's like, you know, in my drawer upstairs. Well, first I got a digital one for home that took, you know, a minute or whatever. And mm-hmm. now we've got like a digital one, you know, you point at your forehead and it beeps and tells you what your temperature yeah. is, which is like yeah. ridiculous. Uh, but in theory, I, you know, uh, water still boils at 100 Celsius and freezes at zero. Like, you know, the you can, you can calibrate these things. It's not sure. like those things have changed. So you should be able to create a, nice. a consistent thermometer no matter, you know, how it works. So yeah. It's, Hopefully. It's, it's wild. I remember there's actually a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I remember where Calvin's homesick okay. and his mom comes and puts his puts the thermometer in his mouth and he's sort of sitting there looking grumpy and you see mm-hmm. a thought bubble and he's like, I don't know if I believe her that these things take 30 minutes to register. <laughs> oh, she just wants him to sit still that long? Yeah, wants him to shut up for 30 minutes. Awesome. There you go. Well, think about like certain things that are like you'll watch an old, old you know movie and there you wonder how many things you're not even picking up on mm-hmm. just like culturally because you didn't grow up in that time. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just, just popped in my head was the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is just a classic, you know, movie. But oh, yeah. Other ones, too, where like he's sick. And so to like get out of school, he, you know, takes like, you know, might like doesn't he like I think he takes a thermometer and like puts it under a wa- hot water bottle or something. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Um, it's like sort of the classic old kind of trick. Well, like you can't do that anymore. When no. parents just walk in and go boop and like instantly take your you know temperature. I mean, we had some of the um, the digital ones. My kid has been sick and like sleeping and you can go in and like take their temperature from across the room practically. You know, right. it's like mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. They're much harder to be a, a, a sneaky child pretending to be sick now <laughs> than it was <laughs> yeah. back in the old days. But I wonder like if someone watching that movie now, you'd see like somebody faking being sick and you're like what like even no do? one would fall for that no or these, gonna these movies you. too where we'll see stuff ah, and it's like but here's the you thing. realize that the entire plot of the movie would not work if cell phones existed right there's so, many, there's so there. many movies like that where you go you know if these people had cell phones like this entire movie wouldn't exist because it wouldn't be an issue you just but, call them okay we'll just well, yeah we'll just sit here for the next two hours and watch people bumble through life with no ability to contact each other and mm. clarify what's going on it's just it's hilarious it's so fun mm-hmm. well i mean think about it too like this just got me thinking about so i was teaching sixth graders earlier this week and um i was playing a character in this particular class it was a historical reenactment at, where i play a grumpy fur trading french voyageur of course you do. Um, Amazing. Thank you. Um, it's a real stretch. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Darn. I have to kind of be mean to children for fun. But um, not just I for was, fun. You're being paid. Exactly. Uh, but they were. <laughs> but the thing That's why was I'm going that into nursing. In really. my brain, truly. Uh, what was so nice or what was wild to me was like, um, so part of this whole thing is like you're 1793. Uh, I hadn't quite gotten to the point of like, ah, oh, we're in 1793 yet. But I'm like, ah, oh, we're going, uh, on the six month journey. You're all ready, right? It's 3000 miles. I hope you're packed. Let's go. Uh, you got strong muscles and everything. And like, and they went, can we take a plane? And I had to be like, <laughs> kids, what kids, is a plane? Kids. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a plane? 
uh, I also, but the reason why I bring it up is because one of the kids, and this is changed within my lifetime, which is very wild to me, is um, we kept going along those same lines. Like they kept trying to trip me up or something. I'm like, you're not going to sure. get me. Um, but they're like, <laughs> can we use a phone and just call like an Uber or something? And I was like, what is that phone? Why do you need to call someone? Hold on. I can call right now. So you go, hello, and, mas. And just calling from like across the room. Like, see, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And like, then there's like. Why are you speaking German suddenly? Right. Well, <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to go into the French accent. That's why. Sorry. And but one of the No, I meant girls, they, they, they want an Uber. Oh, I know. That's German. Oh, beautiful. I didn't think about that. But. They were like, you know, you use your phone to call someone. And they just held their flat hand up to their ear. Like as a phone. Oh. <laughs> instead of like. Like as opposed to holding of a handle. Holding, instead uh, of holding yeah. a handle with a uh, thumb and a no. finger out. <laughs> and they did that. They never and used a phone with a handle, right? Oh, no, they hadn't. And I just saw that and a little piece of me died. And. <laughs> But since I was a French Rachel, I'd like to welcome man. you to a group that Victoria and I have been in for a while called Being Old. Yeah. <laughs> My Great. kids at least do know what an old-fashioned phone is because I've made them Good. watch a lot of Mr. Rogers. Oh, <laughs> love Mr. Rogers. But I will say along those lines, um, because I was playing a French character at that point, and I'm like, why are you putting your hand to your ear? Does it help you mm -hmm. be louder? I don't understand. So that was kind of fun. Trying to hear better? You're covering your ear. You can't hear that. Uh, am way, I yeah. too loud for you? <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Amazing. Great. That's great. But yeah, oh, just the differences and changes yeah. in people is wild. Ugh. Well, we've strayed far from whatever we started talking about. but <laughs> We can go into nostalgia for old movies and things sometime. Mm hmm. I, I do recall when I was a, a child, we had a, a friend who was over. I needed to call his mom to like come pick him up. He mm -hmm. said, all oh, the phone's over there on the wall. And Oren mm -hmm. picked it up and looked at it. And it was a rotary phone. And oh, he was just like, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how to use this. I was like, mm -hmm. what? really? And this yeah. is like 1982. Like, yeah. there were still lots of rotary phones around. But yep. okay. Yep. Didn't have it at his house, so he didn't know what to do. I suppose if you've never seen one before, they are they are strange. Yeah, they, we definitely they had are. one of those when I was growing up. My grandparents did. It was fun to play with. They didn't enjoy yeah. me playing with it. <laughs> Make a very satisfying <laughs> noise. Calling, making long distance phone calls. and yeah. Uh-huh. Well, folks, thank you for being our patrons and listening to mm -hmm. us ramble about strange bonus stuff. This is the stuff that doesn't make it into the show. And mm -hmm. you can see why sometimes. <laughs> so uh, thanks for all your support and uh, being there. And everyone have Appreciate a great day. It. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. I'm going to stop. Stop. You did not say the scientific name of the Russian sturgeon. <laughs> no. Do you see the <clears throat> name of the... Okay, for patrons, I would try. Oh, my God. Too much of a challenge. She's dropped out. Oh, it's... Oh, man. <laughs> it's a sea pincer.
Acupenter Gweldon Stay DT. Good lord. I need to look at this. <laughs> it's it's yeah, I think Acupenter probably. <clears throat> Acupenter. Uh I can do the American paddle. Gelden Steady Eye. That's that's yeah, my G U E L D E N S T A E D T I I. It was some German or yeah. Dutch scientists named Gildenstedt. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Has to be. Lovely. I I Got saw it. that and I, I said absolutely you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> because I have sometimes it's very yeah. small amounts of self-esteem. I can do the poly polyodon spathula. American paddlefish. Spathula. That the American paddlefish. Spathula. Yeah, it is. Spathula. It's got a spatula. Uh, That's a fun one. I will one. say, you know, the one thing uh, I can do that I one. You mentioned your story too, <laughs> is that the both of these are endangered species. Yeah. The American mm. paddlefish is probably I the mentioned... only living yeah. species of paddlefish in the world. Oh, oh wow. really? That's crazy. I didn't mention that. I, part. I thought there would be more of them, but like as I, I'm reading here. Yeah. That the Chinese paddlefish was another type of paddlefish, but it's thought to have gone extinct around 2005. So now the American paddlefish oh. is the only paddlefish left on Earth that we know of. I suppose something else could. And it's only up, found in bummer. Wikipedia states. Yeah. Right. It's an ancient fish. Wikipedia does say the family is most closely related to the sturgeon. So like they're more related than to other fish, I guess. But still, sure. like. That's a long time to be separated. I mean, they split off from each other during, yeah, what was it? Yeah, a long the, time ago. It'd be the mm-hmm. Jurassic And still be able to like hybridize. Jurassic, yeah. 184 million years. Ooh. That was a while back. Mm-hmm. Sure was. Yeah. Definitely a thing of, mm, we're probably safe if we use this. And, well, I guess we weren't safe. Uh, I think my favorite is one of the articles. I, I didn't say it. But <laughs> I didn't say it, but one of my uh, one of the articles, one of the scientists, when they had looked and read the paper or, or no, when they were doing the researchers and they looked and saw that they had like been successfully fertilized or something, they looked like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I read that right? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's it's bizarre. Oh, it's bizarre. Related to your topic, Kirk, can I say something kind of inappropriate? Yeah. So when sure. you were talking about the mutualistic fungus that then becomes the saprophytic fungus, yeah. what, what sprang into my mind was like stories you hear, grim stories you hear <laughs> sometimes of like somebody who, who dies and then their dog eats their body. Oh. Oh, gee. <laughs> wow. That's not where I thought you were going to. No, that's that. not where I thought around. you were going to go either. They, yeah. They compared it more to like. Um, having like a live-in funeral director. But, uh, <laughs> I a, mean, to be fair, the dog analogy when, is that's more like a say, cat. I, thank you, Rachel. Yes, I I think that's there's cat been behavior. I don't studies. I remember reading somewhere that said that commonly dogs are very much averse to eating their owners. Uh. Um, cats have absolutely no qualms about just okay. you know, they'll, they'll find people who've passed away in their homes. And uh, the dogs won't have eaten them, but if they have a cat, the cats will have nibbled their toes off and, and stuff like it's 
I guess that does make sense. I think I was thinking in particular of the story of the woman who got what I believe was the very first face transplant and her, her face, like she had passed out. Maybe she was drunk or something and her dog had Mm -hmm. chewed most of her face off. So that's not saying it usually happens, but it does happen. Yeah. Oh, Wow. And how this took a turn. How passed out. How passed out are you? Yeah. That your dog starts nomming on your face. Pretty darn passed out. And you don't wake up. Yeah. You're comatose. You, uh, probably drank a bit too much, I would mm-hmm. say. Ooh. Now, it's been a while since yeah. I read about this, so I could be getting some of the details wrong, but that's what I remember. And that's why we don't include uh, off-the-cuff stuff we barely remember in the main show. Yeah, that's why uh-huh. I was saving that. Our patrons I... are getting stuff that we think this is accurate, <laughs> right? As recalled? Well, maybe. Gosh, how do we end up on face-eating from sturtlefish? And, uh, <laughs> I, I took a left turn. Fungus. Turtlefish. I took us on a big left turn. <laughs> it's a good... It was Shall a solid left expect, turn, yeah. I did not expect... Didn't expect oh, we dogs can. in people's faces today. Right, well, you know, <laughs> no. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. Yeah.